Volume Two, Part Three of Herodotus Histories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Histories, Volume Two, by Herodotus of Halicarnassus, translated by E. D. Godley. Volume Two, Part Three. One of the rivers of the Scythians then is the Ister. The next is the Tyrus. This comes from the north, flowing at first out of a great lake, which is the boundary between the Scythian and the Nurian countries. At the mouth of the river there is a settlement of Greeks, who are called Tyrite. The third river is the Hippanus. This comes from Scythia, flowing out of a great lake, around which wild white horses graze. This lake is truly called the mother of the Hippanes. Here, then, the Hippanes rises. For five days' journeys its waters are shallow and still sweet, after that, for four days' journey seaward, it is amazingly bitter, for a spring runs into it so bitter that although its volume is small, its admixture taints the Hippanes, one of the few great rivers of the world. This spring is on the border between the farming Scythians and the Alzones. The name of it, and the place where it rises, is in Scythian Exampeus, in the Greek tongue Sacred Ways. The Tyrus and the Hippanes draw near together in the Alzones country, after that they flow apart, the intervening space growing wider. The fourth is the Boristhenes River. This is the next greatest after the Ister, and the most productive in our judgment, not only of the Scythian, but of all rivers, except the Egyptian Nile, with which no other river can be compared. But of the rest, the Boristhenes is the most productive. It provides the finest and best nurturing pasture-lands for beasts, and the fish in it are beyond all in their excellence and abundance. Its water is most sweet to drink, flowing with a clear current, whereas the other rivers are turbid. There is excellent soil on its banks, and very rich grass where the land is not planted, and self-formed crust of salt about it at its mouth. It provides great spineless fish, called sturgeons, for salting, and many other wonderful things besides. Its course is from the north, and it is known as far as the Garen land, that is, for forty days' voyage. Beyond that, no one can say through what nations it flows, but it is plain that it flows through desolate country to the land of the farming Scythians, who live beside it for a ten days' voyage. This is the only river beside the Nile whose source I cannot identify, nor, I think, can any Greek. When the Boristhenes comes near the sea, the Hipponies mingles with it, running into the same marsh. The land between these rivers, where the land projects like a ship's beak, is called Hippolysus Promontory. A temple of Demeter stands there. The settlement of the Boristhenate is beyond the temple, on the Hippanes. This is the produce of these rivers, and after these there is a fifth river called Panticapus. This also flows from the north out of a lake, and the land between it and the Boristhenes is inhabited by the farming Scythians. It flows into the woodland country, after passing which it mingles with the Boristhenes. The sixth is the Hapacurus River, which rises from a lake, and flowing through the midst of the nomadic Scythians, flows out near the city of Carcine, bordering on its right the woodland and the region called the Racecourse of Achilles. The seventh river, the Garrus, separates from the Boristhenes at about the place which is at the end of our knowledge of that river. At this place it separates, and has the same name as the place itself, Garrus. Then, in its course to the sea, it divides the country of the nomads, and the country of the royal Scythians, and empties into the Hippocurus. The eighth is the Tanais River. 
In its upper course this begins by flowing out of a great lake, and enters a yet greater lake called the Metian, which divides the royal Scythians from the Saromate. Another river, called Hyrgis, is a tributary of the Tanais. These are the rivers of note with which the Scythians are provided. For rearing cattle, the grass growing in Scythia is the most productive of bile of all pastures which we know, that this is so can be judged by opening up the bodies of the cattle. The most important things are thus provided them. It remains now to show the customs which are established among them. The only gods whom they propitiate are these, Hestia in particular, and secondly Zeus and Earth, whom they believe to be the wife of Zeus, after these Apollo and the heavenly Aphrodite, and Heracles and Ares. All the Scythians worship these as gods. The Scythians called royal sacrifice to Poseidon also. In the Scythian tongue Hestia is called Tabiti, Zeus, in my judgment most correctly so called, Papaeus, Earth is Apia, Apollo, Gotosiris, the heavenly Aphrodite, Argympasa, Poseidon, Thagamasades. It is their practice to make images and shrines for Ares, but for no other god. In all their sacred rites they follow the same method of sacrifice. This is how it is offered. The victim stands with its forefeet shackled together, the sacrificer stands behind the beast, and throws it down by pulling the end of the rope. As the victim falls, he invokes whatever god it is to whom he sacrifices. Then, throwing a noose around the beast's neck, he thrusts in a stick and twists it, and so strangles the victim, lighting no fire nor offering the first-fruits, nor pouring any libation, and having strangled and skinned the beast, he sets about cooking it. Now, as the Scythian land is quite bare of wood, this is how they contrive to cook the meat. When they have skinned the victims, they strip the meat from the bones and throw it into the cauldrons of the country, if they have them. These are most likely lesbian bowls, except that they are much bigger. They throw the meat into these, then, and cook it by lighting a fire beneath with the bones of the victims. But if they have no cauldron, then they put all the meat into the victim's stomach, adding water, and make a fire of the bones beneath, which burn nicely. The stomachs easily hold the meat when it is stripped from the bones. Thus a steer serves to cook itself and every other victim does likewise. When the flesh is cooked, the sacrificer takes the first fruits of the flesh in the entrails, and casts them before him. They use all grazing animals for sacrifice, but mainly horses. This is their way of sacrificing to other gods, and these are the beasts offered, but their sacrifices to Ares are of this sort. Every district in each of the governments has a structure sacred to Ares, namely, a pile of bundles of sticks three-eighths of a mile wide and long, but of a lesser height, on the top of which there is a flattened four-sided surface. Three of its sides are sheer, but the fourth can be ascended. Every year a hundred and fifty wagon-loads of sticks are heaped upon this, for the storms of winter always make it sink down. On this sacred pile an ancient scimitar of iron is set for each people, their image of Ares. They bring yearly sacrifice of sheep and goats and horses to this scimitar, offering to these symbols even more than they do to the other gods. Of enemies that they take alive, they sacrifice one man in every hundred, not as they sacrifice sheep and goats, but differently. They pour wine on the men's heads and cut their throats over a bowl, then they carry the blood up on to the pile of sticks and pour it on the scimitar. They carry the blood up above, but down below by the sacred pile they cut off all the slain men's right arms and hands, and throw these into the air, and depart when they have sacrificed the rest of the victims. The arm lies where it has fallen, and the body apart from it. 
These, then, are their established rites of sacrifice. But these Scythians make no offerings of swine, nor are they willing for the most part to rear them in their country. As to war, these are their customs. A Scythian drinks the blood of the first man whom he has taken down. He carries the heads of all whom he has slain in the battle to his king, for if he brings a head he receives a share of the booty taken, but not otherwise. He scalps the head by making a cut around it by the ears, then grasping the scalp and shaking the head off. Then he scrapes out the flesh with the rib of a steer, and kneads the skin with his hand, and having made it supple, he keeps it for a hand-towel, fastening it to the bridle of the horse which he himself rides, and taking pride in it, for he who has most scalps for hand-towels is just the best man. Many Scythians even make garments to wear out of these scalps, sewing them all together like coats of skin. Many, too, take off the skin, nails and all, from their dead enemies' right hands, and make coverings for their quivers. The human skin was, as it turned out, thick and shining, the brightest and whitest of skin, one might say. Many flay the skin from the whole body, too, and carry it about on horseback stretched on a wooden frame. The heads themselves, not all of them, but those of their bitterest enemies, they treat this way. Each saws off all the part beneath the eyebrows, and cleans the rest. If he is a poor man, then he covers the outside with a piece of rawhide, and so makes use of it. But if he is rich, he covers the head with the rawhide, and gilds the inside of it, and uses it for a drinking cup. Such a man also makes out of the head of his kinsman with whom he has been feuding, and whom he has defeated in single combat before the king. And if guests whom he honours visit him, he will serve them with these heads, and show how the dead were his kinsfolk, who fought him and were beaten by them. This they call manly valour. Furthermore, once a year each governor of a province brews a bowl of wine in his own province, which these Scythians who have slain enemies drink. Those who have not achieved this do not taste this wine, but sit apart dishonoured, and this they consider a very great disgrace. But as many as have slain not one but many enemies have two cups apiece, and drink out of both. There are many diviners among the Scythians, who divine by means of many willow wands, as I will show. They bring great bundles of wands, which they lay on the ground and unfasten, and utter their divinations as they lay the rods down one by one, and while still speaking, they gather up the rods once more and place them together again. This manner of divination is hereditary among them. The Anaris, who are hermaphrodites, say that Aphrodite gave them the art of divination, which they practised by means of lime-tree bark. They cut this bark into three portions, and prophesy while they braid and unbraid these in their fingers. Whenever the king of the Scythians falls ill, he sends for the three most reputable diviners, who prophesy in the aforesaid way, and they generally tell him that such and such a man, naming whoever it may be of the people, has sworn falsely by the king's hearth, for when the Scythians will swear their mightiest oath, it is by the king's hearth that they are accustomed to swear. Immediately the man whom they allege to have sworn falsely is seized and brought in, and when he comes the diviners accuse him, saying that their divination shows to him to have sworn falsely by the king's hearth, and that this is the cause of the king's sickness, and the man vehemently denies that he has sworn falsely. When he denies it, the king sends for twice as many diviners, and if they too, consulting their art, prove him guilty of perjury, then he is instantly beheaded, and his goods are divided among the first diviners. But if the latter diviners acquit him, then the other diviners come, and yet again others." If the greater number of them acquit the man, it is decreed that the first diviners themselves be put to death. And this is how they die. 
Men yoke oxen to a wagon laden with sticks and tie the diviners up in these, fettering their legs and binding their hands behind him and gagging them. Then they set fire to the sticks and drive the oxen away, stampeding them. Often the oxen are burnt to death with the diviners, and often the yoke-pole of their wagon is burnt through and the oxen escape with a scorching. They burn their diviners for other reasons, too, in the way described, calling them false prophets. When the king puts them to death, he does not leave the sons alive either, but kills all the males of the family, the females he does not harm. As for giving sworn pledges to those who are to receive them, this is the Scythian way. They take blood from the parties to the agreement by making a little cut on the body with an awl or knife, and pour it mixed with wine into a big earthenware bowl, into which they then dip a scimitar and arrows and an axe and a javelin, and when this is done, those swearing the agreement, and the most honourable of their followers, drink the blood after solemn curses. The burial places of the kings are in the land of the Geri, which is the end of the navigation of the Borysthenes. Whenever their king has died, the Scythians dig a great four-cornered pit in the ground there. When this is ready, they take up the dead man, his body enclosed in wax, his belly cut open and cleaned and filled with cut marsh plants and frankincense, and parsley and anise seed, and sewn up again, and transport him on a wagon to another tribe. Then those who receive the dead man on his arrival do the same as the royal Scythians. That is, they cut off a part of their ears, shave their heads, make cuts around their arms, tear their foreheads and noses, and pierce their left hands with arrows. From there, the escorts transport the king's body on the wagon to another of the tribes that they rule, and those to whom they have already come follow them, and, having carried the dead man to all in turn, they are at the place of burial in the country of the Gary, the farthest distant tribe of all under their rule. Then, having laid the body on a couch in the tomb, they plant spears on each side of the body, and lay wooden planks across them, which they then roof over with braided osiers. In the open space which is left in the tomb they bury one of the king's concubines, his cup-bearer, his cook, his groom, his squire, and his messenger, after strangling them, besides horses and first-fruits of everything else, and golden cups, for the Scythians do not use silver or bronze. Having done this, they all build a great barrow of earth, vying eagerly with one another to make this as great as possible. After a year has passed, they next do as follows. They take the most trusted of the rest of the king's servants, and these are native-born Scythians, for only those whom he tells to do serve the king, and none of the Scythians have servants bought by money, and strangle fifty of these and fifty of their best horses, and empty and clean the bellies of them all, fill them with chafe, and sew them up again. Then they fasten half a wheel to two posts, the hollow upward, and the other half to the pair of posts, until many posts thus prepared are planted in the ground, and after driving thick stakes lengthways through the horses' bodies to their necks, they place the horses up on the wheels, so that the wheel in front supports the horse's forequarters, and the wheel behind takes the weight of the belly by the hindquarters, and the forelegs and hindlegs hung free, and putting bridles and bits in the horses' mouths, they stretch the bridles to the front and fasten them with pegs. Then they take each one of the fifty strangled young men and mount him on the horse. Their way of doing it is to drive an upright stake through each body, passing up alongside the spine to the neck, leaving enough of the stake projecting below to be fixed in a hole made in the other stake, which passes through the horse. So, having set the horsemen of this fashion around the tomb, they ride away. This is the way they bury their kings. All other Scythians, when they die, are laid in wagons and carried about among their friends by their nearest of kin. Each receives them and entertains the retinue hospitably, 
setting before the dead man about as much of the fare as he serves to the rest. All but the kings are carried about like this for forty days, and then buried. After the burial the Scythians cleanse themselves as follows. They anoint and wash their heads, and for their bodies set up three poles leaning together to a point, and cover these over with wool mats. Then, in the space so enclosed to the best of their ability, they make a pit in the centre beneath the poles and the mats, and throw red-hot stones into it. They have hemp growing in their country, very like flax, except that the hemp is much thicker and taller. This grows both of itself and also by their cultivation, and the Thracians even make garments of it which are very like linen. No one, unless he were an expert in hemp, could determine whether they were hempen or linen. Whoever has never seen hemp before will think the garment linen. The Scythians then take the seed of this hemp, and crawling in under the mats, throw it on the red-hot stones, where it smoulders and sends forth such fumes that no Greek vapour-bath could surpass it. The Scythians howl in their joy at the vapour-bath. This serves them instead of bathing, for they never wash their bodies with water. But their women pound cypress and cedar and frankincense wood on a rough stone, adding water also, and with the thick stuff thus pounded they anoint their bodies and faces, as a result of which not only does a fragrant scent come from them, but when on the second day they take off the ointment, their skin becomes clear and shining. But as regards foreign customs, the Scythians, like others, very much shun practising those of any other country, and particularly of Hellas, as was proved in the case of Ananarchus, as was proved in the case of Anacarsus, and also of Siles. For when Anacarsus was coming back to the Scythian country, after having seen much of the world in his travels, and given many examples of his wisdom, he sailed through the Hellespont, and put in at Sisychus, where, finding the Sisycines celebrating the feast of the mother of the gods with great ceremony, he vowed to this same mother, that if he returned to his own country safe and sound, he would sacrifice to her, as he saw the Sisycines doing, and establish a knightly rite of worship. So when he came to Scythia, he hid himself in the country called Woodland, which is beside the race of Achilles, and is all overgrown with every kind of timber. Hidden there, Anacarsus celebrated the goddess's ritual with exactness, carrying a small drum and hanging images about himself. Then some Scythians saw him doing this, and told the king, Solius, who, coming to the place himself, and seeing Anacarsus performing these rites, shot an arrow at him and killed him. And now the Scythians, if they are asked about Anacarsus, say they have no knowledge of him. This is because he left his country for Hellas, and followed the customs of strangers. But according to what I heard from Timnes, the deputy for Ariapithes, Anacarsus was an uncle of Edanthrasus, king of Scythia, and he was the son of Nurus, son of Lycus, son of Spargopithes. Now if Anacarsus was truly of this family, then let him know he was slain by his own brother, for Edanthrasus was the son of Solius, and it was Solius who killed Anacarsus. It is true that I have heard another story told by the Peloponnesians, namely, that Anacarsus had been sent by the king of Scythia, and had been a student of the ways of Hellas, and after his return told the king who sent him that all Greeks were king for every kind of learning, except the Lacedaemonians, but that these were the only Greeks who spoke and listened with discretion. But this is a tale pointlessly invented by the Greeks themselves, and, be this as it may, the man was put to death as I have said. End of Volume 2, Part 3